Hello and welcome to Everyday Sublime. I'm your host, Josh Summers, and I'm so glad you're here. Today, I am very excited to release the first part of my four-part interview with Paul Greeley. Ever since the inception of this podcast, it has always been my plan to have Paul on. If you think about it, the reason any of us are doing yin yoga today is because of Paul. The reason any of us are talking about the implications of bone variation in our asanas This is also because of Paul's pioneering work, which was then elaborated on by Bernie Clark in his books uh, in the series Your Body, Your Yoga. Paul, in other words, is the proverbial godfather of yin yoga, and I wanted to get the podcast established before inviting such a heavy guest onto the program. But here he is. In this first episode of my interview, we discuss Paul's early encounter with the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda and his teacher, Dr. Hiroshi Motoyama. We also spend some time exploring ways of thinking about different spiritual paths and practices. From there, I asked Paul to share his view of the spiritual path, in other words, his Tao. Now, as you will hear, Paul has a tremendous sense of humor and a really infectious laugh. It was such a buzz getting to pick his brain about some rather esoteric aspects of yoga practice. After some introductory context, we dive into a discussion about his new book, A Yogi's Guide to Chakra Meditation, and a link for that book will be included in the show notes. The total interview reached nearly an hour and a half, and the topics we cover focus on the deeper aspects of the yogic journey. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed speaking with Paul. And now, without further ado, I bring you Paul Greeley. Okay, today I am with Paul Greeley. Paul, thank you so much for coming on Everyday Sublime. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Great. You know, in anticipation of this um, this conversation and having you on the podcast, I was reminiscing about when I when I met you years ago. This was back in early two thousands, and I think you were on the workshop more on the tra- traveling workshop workshop schedule then, and. Uh, a friend of mine and a student of yours, Christine O'Shaughnessy, had you into the Boston area for a while. And at the time, I was a, a dyed-in-the-wool Iyengar yoga practitioner. And, oh. <laughs> and I, I, came to, I came to one of, a few of your workshops, and on one of them in particular, uh, you were preaching the gospel of skeletal variation. And I think I more or less got the concept, but I was sort of looking at myself in Upavishta Konasana or dragonfly pose, and I'm thinking, you know, I've been doing this for a while, and it's not really improving, or I'm not getting greater range of motion. And literally the week or two before I met you, I had been in a class with a senior Iyengar teacher who whispered in my ear, she said, you'll be able to get this pose in 10 more years. Just keep on doing it for 10 more years. So I had that mantra in my head when I came to your workshop, 10 more years, 10 more years. And then, of course, you, you laid down the, 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 uh, the implications of bone variation. And one and one were adding up to two. And I'm like, okay, wait a minute. This, is, this was probably not just a 10 more year, issue of 10 more years. But I wanted confirmation. And so I called you over and I asked, hey, can you just give me a sense of what's happening here? And, and you used two words. You gave me two words, which literally changed the course of my yogic spiritual life in a certain sense. 
And <laughs> before I share what those two words are, do you have a sense of what those two words might be? Uh, no. Begins with G, ends with R. So you leaned over behind my back uh, and you kind of brought your hands to your mouth like you were going to whisper. <laughs> and then you just shouted, game over. <laughs> Perfect. And yeah, like the edifice, the edifice of aesthetic alignment, the aspirations to get on the cover of Yoga Journal, they just crumbled. They just they shattered right then and there. Um, I've been there, brother. Yeah, I've been there. I get it. Yeah, you know. Me know. too. It's like, man, someday, someday. <laughs> but I was it's just wondering, though. you know, before you... <laughs> <laughs> So uh, what we're going to be talking about is your new book. But before we get into that, um, just, just as a casual question, do you have a rough estimate for how many times you've disabused people of their limitations <laughs> like how many times has the has the edict game over been issued in your, in your teaching career <laughs> and figuratively or literally gosh i don't know thousands of times I mean, if you do if you if you calculate how many people are in the room but you know the flip side of that is how many people accepted that you know how many people accepted that pronouncement i think in the early years when i was traveling yeah. I had such a limited amount of time with people. I could only give so much background or evidence for my position. I might have said, you know, game over or you're not going to do that. But I think I, it wouldn't surprise me that a great number of those people were, you know, polite but skeptical. Right. But no, no, there's, I, and on my side, I could tell you in the, in the audience, there's definitely people that will say, oh, that's just Paul's thing. That's yeah. just, you know, Paul has that taken. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if I buy that Kool-Aid kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is healthy. But as the years have gone by and there's been product out there and then and then uh, all the work on uh, that Bernie Clark has done uh, to publish and other people. Now people come to our courses. They come to us already biased to the argument, if not already bought into the argument. So in the last five or six or seven or eight years, yeah, a lot of people have heard that message. Yeah, no, it's great. And, you know, you've definitely been um, identified as the main uh, innovator pioneer on that that idea, um, and as you were just saying, with all the products that have been produced now, both your own work and Bernie Clark's work, that is in the public domain and, and pretty well regarded now. Um, but you have this new book. Uh, this is what I wanted to have you on the on the podcast to talk about. You have this book, A Yogi's Guide to Chakra Meditation, um, which I want to unpack with you um, okay. because it. And what I appreciate about the book, and maybe I don't know if you you share this this sentiment, but um, it'll it moves you your your the content from what you're teaching from moves it into the spiritual domain of kind of higher consciousness, higher realization, um, above and beyond just the the brass tacks of can your body do this or not based on your bones. So it's it's sort of it's a nice deepening of what you offer, I think. Um, and as an in, leading question. One of the things I wanted to ask you was, in people's journey, in people's spiritual journey, they, they kind of shop around for a while, and then at some point they kind of settle into a family or a tribe or a particular tradition or, or uh, lineage. And it, it seems like you're, you're situated within this chakra tradition, of the, 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 the tantric tradition of, of yoga, uh, and rooted in classical yoga as well. 
But I kind of, on a personal level, just curious, how did you come to settle there? Or if you, in fact, have settled there, how did you get there? What were you... What was what was going on in your life when you when you settled in there, and um, and what has that part of that journey been like for you? Okay, uh, definitely, I think I can trace that pretty quick. Uh, my first exposure to sort of higher consciousness uh, studies in yoga was the autobiography of a yogi, and the Kriya Yoga technique that Yogananda and his organization expound as being a very effective technique is uh, based on uh, circulating energy up and down the chakras, very much like a, a Taoist circulation orbit mm-hmm. with it, their own little takes. But basically, it's that thing. And in the, among either in the autobiography itself or the lessons which I read, you know, it's 150 lessons. It's another six, 700 pages of material. Mm-hmm. So between, you know, a, nearly 1,000 pages of material, um, one, Yogananda comes to... Uh, Meditation in general as, you know, this uh, the next level of physiology of withdrawing the energy into your spine and and moving from there. And he also tied it to in in ways I don't have time to get into now, um, the movement of the stars and the rise and fall of civilizations. Hmm. And for me, it was just incredibly fascinating to think that we are literally a microcosmic reflection that's reflecting a huge, vast time scale of cycles. And it's just that what's happening up there in 24,000 year cycles is happening down here in, you know, in, in, in shorter cycles of breathing rates and stuff. And it was just innately appealing to me to think that you could unify the realm of human physiology, admittedly esoteric physiology, which you had to buy into, yep. uh, and the greater cycles of time and space. And so I was in with that. It's like, oh, this is great. And then about uh, 10 to see. Like, roughly what age were you when, when, when you came across? I was 20. Text? 20? I was 20, yeah. Yeah. Because well, if I can editorialize for a second, I came to that book too, in, in not as a, much of a lightning strike way, but um, I remember a, a mentor of mine, when he knew I was getting into yoga, he suggested I read it. And I got the autobiography of Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda. And... Again, I was coming at it from an, I had been doing Iyengar yoga, and so <laughs> I was all about kneecaps lifting. And I looked at the cover, and Yogananda had this kind of long, flowing, effeminate locks, and I thought, this really isn't my scene. And I kind of flipped open a little bit. I'm like, not really my scene either. And I put it aside for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but years later, I was living and teaching English and secondary school in India, and uh, one of the guys that was part of the school was a devotee of Yogananda's. And he said, and he kind of, he broke it down. He said, you should really check out this autobiography again. And I read it and it really did. I, I suspended skepticism for a while. And, it, and it, I really just realized if this is true, if the stuff he's talking about is, is a direct experience, um, this changes every conceptualization I've had about what the world is and who I am. It was, it was kind of a, an atom bomb that went off. Now I haven't yeah, stayed that, in that. I haven't stayed in that tradition. It, there were some stylistic things that did finally start to put me off a little bit, and we don't necessarily have to get into that. But um, I just I'm trying to contextualize that that part of the conversation for people that may not have heard of Yogananda. Mm-hmm. Um, who he was one of these yogis that did come from India, uh, landed in West in, in California, Southern California. From uh, I think Boston first, actually. Boston. He was Did he land in Chicago too? Like for, I think he did. Yeah. Like, uh, sometimes I confuse that with Vivekananda, right. but his first 
sort of residence was Boston. Yeah. Oh. Well, there you go. And that's where my there residence you go, is. Man. <laughs> exactly. And uh, anyway, to continue that story is yeah. that, you know, about uh, 10 years later, uh, 1988 or 9, I met Dr. Motoyama through his book again. Uh, his book was Theories of the Chakras. And um, so now I had contact with a living master who was also a double PhD scientist. Yeah. And he just continued in this confirmation that. Uh, the chakras are real. They are physiological. They they can be studied or will be studied in future civilization. The same way we study the influence of the liver and the kidney and the physical heart on us now. And so it was sort of reinforced. So I've, I sort of fell into that camp from the beginning. And then it was reinforced again, uh, you know, a decade later, sort of like, you know, um, bump up your vaccination kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so it's always been so innately interesting to me that it's always been, you know, my path of choice. And what, within that path of choice, what was your practice life like? You know, from my end, you know, when we, when I got into Buddhist meditation, one of the things that Buddhist meditators do is you start going on silent retreats a lot, doing Vipassana retreats or seven, nine day retreats. Um, And that is sort of a way to immerse yourself in the teachings and, and, and advance your understanding and experience of the practice. And kind of, I'm just curious, like on your end, what was, was there, was there an analog to that for you? Were you spending a lot of time with Motoyama? Were you doing retreats or doing home practice primarily? How did, what, how did that take? It was you? almost entirely home practice for me. Mm-hmm. I've done some retreats, uh, both uh, associated with uh, Yogananda's organization and I've done uh, a retreat with uh, Dr. Motoyama's organization in Japan. Um, but one, uh, it's just mostly been home. It's, 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 not, uh, it's not at all this, what you described, that I did several immersive programs. It's almost always been you're at home doing practice. Yep. Yeah, and I, of course, um, at the end of the day, that's where it all happens anyway you know, where the rubber hits the road at home. And, you know, the retreats are not any, like, a sign of a, a better practitioner or, or more advanced practice. It's just sometimes helpful to immerse oneself in that and then st- come back in with a, with a renewed understanding and freshness. Um, in the, uh, the lead into this interview, I, I, I pitched you some questions. And as an introduction to your book, which is, again, on chakra meditation, um, one of the things I think it's helpful to do for for a lay audience is to try to contextualize where does a particular tradition or a particular approach to practice fit in within the larger canon of spiritual technology. Um, and what I mean by that is, as I've surveyed various traditions, there, there seems to be a story embedded in each of them around what are the things that perpetuate and cause pain and suffering in one's life and what are what are the things that precipitate a freedom or liberation from that suffering and um, before we dive into say the specifics of chakras and um, the content of what you talk about in the book I was wondering if you could maybe lay out or walk us through what do you see as that story in the form of spirituality that you're you're practicing I pretty much adapt um, Patanjali's description, and that's the the goal of yoga is you eventually abide in your own true nature. 
He's very vague about what that true nature is. He only comes back to it uh, two more times. Anyway, the very last sutra of the book, Mm. he describes that, you know, you're in your own true nature and the power of consciousness, and it's very cryptic. But um, that's what it's about, that if you're not, you know, again, this is a straight Patanjali. If you are not abiding in your own true nature, then you are identifying with the vrittis in your consciousness. And it's sort of the Sankhya yoga philosophy that that is suffering. Yeah. And so vrittis and vasanas and, and, and all their various levels are the result of who we think we are, what we identify with, mm-hmm. and how we react to our environment is determined by who we think we are. And if we were, and Patanjali says, if you actually could control the vrittis in your chitta, then, then he says, then, if, then, you would be abiding in your own true nature. Yeah. And then overlying that is, even though Patanjali doesn't say this very clearly, um, other people like Dr. Motiyama and Paramahansa Yogananda says, your own true nature is Satchitananda. Your own true nature is existence, it's consciousness, and it's blissful. And so I amalgamate that into, that's the sort of, that's my goal in my practice. Yeah, great. So if I can play that back a little bit and make sure I got heard it correctly. Um, essentially, the vrittis, and, and I, I should interject here, just say that your book, among other things that it is, is, is a wonderful glossary, too, of these uh, spiritual terms that you find in yoga um, and the yoga tradition in general. It's, it really lays out these terms nicely. But the uh, vrittis in the yogic sense are thoughts, modifications of experience, or content of experience? Would you, would you agree with that? Like sort of yes. th- things that yes. are arising within your consciousness, and then the consciousness itself is the, uh, the more the absolute position of a self knowing that experience. So you could, so Sam Harris puts it, lays it out, he says you have consciousness and its contents. And, and, um, and whenever there's an identification or a misidentification with an aspect of content, i.e. a thought or a feeling or a sensation or a view, then, then suffering is bound to follow because the, the true nature of consciousness has been occluded or, or obstructed by that identification, that process of identification. Yes, I, w- I would concur with that. Okay. So the, um, a, a theme that I have been, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but we'll, we'll loop it back in in a sec, a theme that I have been kind of considering um, in my own practice lately, it, and as I survey these various traditions, is that um, sometimes the language within a tradition sounds like it's talking about absolutes, like objective absolutes. And sometimes language in a tradition sounds like it's talking about deep subjective experience. And... Um, I think for the modern person in the audience, um, a lot of times the more absolute statements that you find in spiritual traditions sound problematic because they don't necessarily lend themselves to to truth testing, to to sort of to sort of the the, me- the mechanistic materialistic way of assessing the validity of a truth claim. I'm trying to think of an example off the top of my head. Something like we're all one. 
right? Like that, that's a statement you often hear in the traditions, so we're all one. And, you know, I can sit here and say, well, we're all one, but, you know, I don't have, I don't have higher knowledge right now of what a peasant's life in China is like. Like, so how are we all one? Like, where does the oneness come? But I think from the lens of direct, subjective, more phenomenological experience, that all those statements actually kind of line up and, and crystallize in a, in a way that makes sense, that it's true. And from your subjective experience, things that are arising are arising in a state of oneness within your mind. And I just, I'm putting that on the table because I think sometimes, in, for me, I've had difficulty swallowing some things that sound metaphysical or ultimate nature when it's like, I don't, wouldn't know, have any idea how to prove or disprove it. But when I, when I put it in the position of what is my direct experience, and maybe the language and the tradition is, is just that language pointing to what the experience is like, then everything seemed, has felt like it's, it's sort of lined up and made, makes more sense to me. Um, so I just want to mention that going forward for anyone in the audience, sometimes there might be statements that we use that sound absolute. And, um, and if you believe or feel and have strong convictions on how those might be absolute, I'm, I'm definitely interested in hearing that. But I also want to hold the table for or hold the room for, um, for that other option that, that maybe these are just poetic, uh, descriptive terms for, for deep subjective experience. Yeah, I, I'm in your camp completely. Uh, in fact, one of my favorite uh, poets is uh, Kabir. Uh, he was a mystic. He was a Muslim weaver born and lived in the holy Hindu city of uh, Varanasi. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said many, many things in a very pithy way. And I think addressing this issue uh uh, he's, he's, his quote is, if you have not lived through something, it is not true. And that's how I see these, um, these bold statements, which I believe are true. I have no personal evidence that it's true. I couldn't argue that it's true. Um, and so because and I think that's where I fall in with Kabir. And what I think you're also saying is that, well, all that does, all those things, those sayings, we are all one, love is the foundation of the world, all this stuff. Like, look, that sounds great. That is not my experience. But when it comes from a Yogananda or a Buddha or a Ramakrishna or a Vivekananda, when it comes from them, I don't believe they're lying. I believe that they're they're describing something they've experienced. Mm-hmm. And so when I hear those absolute statements, it doesn't motivate me to want to defend them in a debate with anybody right. because I couldn't. Right. And I could absolutely have no argument for someone who says that's nonsense, Paul. Why do you believe that? I don't think I could answer that question either. So those absolute statements for me are motivating things. It's like, wow, I would like to have that mystical experience where God is love. I would like to have that mystical experience where that's actually a true statement. But I would never argue them and I would never debate them. And I have complete sympathy for people who find that very difficult to believe. That Kabir statement, I think, was echoed by Charlie Parker, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know his line? No, I don't. (laughs) Charlie Parker, the great bebop alto saxophone, said, you can't play the blues if you haven't lived them. Uh, excellent. You know? yeah, Charlie and Kabir. Yeah, Charlie and Kabir. <laughs> the, the Dharma of Charlie.
Okay, I'll pause the conversation there. The Dharma of Kabir, the Dharma of Charlie Parker, the Tao of Paul Greeley. I should say I fact-checked my quote of Charlie Parker and realized that I got it wrong. The line ascribed to Charlie Parker is actually, quote, if you don't live it, it won't come out of your horn, end quote. As I often paraphrase to my students in trainings, if you don't have direct experience of a teaching, if you, in other words, if you haven't lived it, it won't come through in your own teaching, or as Charlie Parker might say, it won't come out of your horn. I hope you enjoyed the first part of my conversation with Paul, and I should just say on an editorial note, with this particular conversation, I did find it a bit challenging to cut it into neat segmented episodes for a series. So if any of the stops feel a little abrupt as we go along, I do apologize for that in advance. I did the best I could. But in the next episode, we dive further into the spiritual terrain of suffering, samadhi, deeper states of meditative absorption, and the ultimate limitations of spiritual techniques. I look forward to sharing that next installment with you soon. And in the meantime, I encourage you to pick up a copy of Paul's new book, A Yogi's Guide to Chakra Meditation. You can check out the link I left for you in the show notes. And also, if you'd like to study or train in yin yoga with me this year, please check out my calendar of events on my site, which is www.joshsummers.net forward slash events, where you'll find up-to-date listings of the trainings, workshops, and retreats that Terry Coburn and I offer in our yin yoga school. Okay, that's it for today. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode, and thanks for listening.